All right, Grant, uh, welcome to Room With A View. How exciting is this? Our first podcast. How are you feeling today? Feeling pretty good, actually. I'm feeling pumped. It's 2022. Everybody's got a podcast, so why should we not have one too? I think that's right. Uh, we've had so many good conversations, and actually, you can hear Guns N' Roses in the background. Guns N' Roses is a band that we've, I feel like we've connected on, so we had to have Guns N' Roses at our intro. We did. And uh, I think if you remember back, I came down to your office and said, look, Slash is playing the national anthem at the Clippers game. So we sat here and we watched it in your office. And then it flipped on to the next YouTube video, which was Metallica playing the national anthem. Yes. <laughs> so we watched a bunch of uh, famous musicians play the national anthem. So, yes, we definitely bonded over that. And good to have them back this year. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, look, what, why are we here? You, you, you and I had the idea of a podcast at about the same time. What's, what's the motivation? Well, I think, uh, one, I like talking to you, of course. Uh, but two, I think, um, yeah, you and I, we talk a lot. Uh, we love hotels. We don't really get into the nitty-gritty of, you know, operator, owner and, and all of those things. We really talk philosophically about how much we love the business, right, and the things that we're passionate about, what we want to see for the future, developing people, all those sort of things. So we thought, why not share it with everybody else? Yeah, that's right. I think uh, ultimately we have such great conversations. We wanted to lift the lid on that and let other people see what what we talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we like it. So <laughs> we, <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> we, hope, we hope that other people like about it. So we hope other people like it. So you've... So for those of you that don't know you, uh, what's your story? Tell us, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, uh, like yourself, I came into the industry in the mid-90s. Um, I was very fortunate that the, the general manager that actually employed me as a night auditor was a friend of my dad's, right? And so that got me the start, which was great. Uh, he gave me a number of opportunities. So I went from night audit to financial controller in just under two years. Right. Which I guess, you know, looking back, I wasn't prepared Extraordinary. for Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I was underqualified. However, um, extraordinary, right? Doesn't happen a lot now. The hotel I was in was bought by IHG. So then all of a sudden you're on a international path if you want it. Um, global operator, very different to just a small private owner. Um, and then I've carried on ever since, moving through that company, moving all around Australia, moving to Fiji, a few different locations. But, uh, yeah, nearly, what are we now, 25, 26 years. Unbelievable. So could you have imagined back then working for a mate of your dad's that you'd have the career that you've had? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, in fact, funnily enough, the first time that I ever uh, had an issue with the financial controller who was there at the time, she took me into the office, gave me a, a talking to, I think I'd miscounted something on a stock take or something. We used to do stock takes back in the day. Yeah. Um, and she said to me, look, mate, you're the boss's mate's son, right? That's pretty much it. So just pull your head in, keep your head down. Like, you're not going. You've reached, you've reached you, as you, far <laughs> as you're going to go. You've reached the pinnacle. Uh, so just ride the wave and away we go. So, yeah, no, absolutely not. Not back then. So I think I think you know this this podcast is going to do a lot of reflection, isn't it? Like we're going to talk a lot about our own journey, but make observations and share funny stories and anecdotes and things that have happened to us um, and and things that we've been part of. Um, and then equally, we're going to talk about hotels as they are now and and potentially hotels as they are in the future. That's that's kind of what we want to do here, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, yeah, you and I agree. There's a bit of a tipping point at the moment. So there's been a long period. There's sort of those 10-year bookends that you, you mentioned today, big events that happen. They sort of bookend things that go on from there in the industry. So we're at that tipping point now. We've mm. been through something pretty ordinary for two years and now it's it's a, a case of what's next. Um, the industry itself, I mean, it's never been better as far as I'm concerned. There's so much opportunity the colour and, and the flavour of the industry compared to when you and I started is so different. Mm. Um, you know, it's so expansive. And, you know, the, the markets that are developing, um, I think, well, mid-90s, what do we have, four brands per operator maybe? Mm. Um, you know, limited stock in each major city for each operator. 
and it's a very different prospect now. I think also the Australian hotel industry was very domestic. Like there wasn't too many international hotels back in the nineties. Yeah, and, and I think n- uh, now we're a global <coughs> we're a global market, and 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 rightfully so. The world's great hoteliers come from this part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. So we export great talent everywhere. You see it wherever you go. Even when you go to places like Canada and you're on the ski fields, and you know everybody there is Australian. <laughs> so we've got we've got great hospitality DNA here. So let, let's let's start let's start there then. Let's talk about now. So you're right. We are at one of those bookends. We've we've come through COVID. The world is getting back to normal. There's massive pent up demand for travel. I think the the travelling public uh, really appreciate our industry. They know what they've they know what they've missed and they want great hotels. You you talked about this. Um, this is a really exciting time to be a hotelier. Maybe you could just articulate that a bit more. What what makes it exciting? You talked about new markets. You've talked about hotels as an investment class. How do you? How does that all come together for you? I think it's it's um, if you look at it on a personal level, right? I'm a very competitive person <laughs> by nature. Um, a high tide raises all boats, and if you look at you know somewhere like 2017, right? The market's at its peak. Ninety-one percent Sydney. Absolutely. So, without being, I guess, flippant. You could be a revenue manager and a general manager in 2017 and pull some pretty healthy results whilst doing a lot of things that you wanted to do in your own personal time, right? Like, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, and look, that's fine. You know, you have these ebbs and flows. We weren't enjoying that in the GFC, right? So there's always uh, ups and downs. But right now, the industry starting from a zero base pretty much. So if you are someone who really backs your ability and says, you know what, I am the best yield manager in this market. You can prove it. Mm. 2022, 2023, you can actually prove it. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of people will learn some really valuable lessons. We're going to unearth like the superstars in the next 18 months. I mean, we know a lot of people who are stars, right? So it's not that we don't, but there's just this beautiful uh, open space now for someone who has... A significant ability to really uh, outpace everybody else. And I really want to see how that happens. And I suppose a little bit like post-GFC, yes, the blue sky is, is really very blue and it's out there to be taken. But you've got this cohort of individuals that have shown in the last two years a huge amount of resilience, a huge amount of grit. Like there's this beautiful combination of of opportunity and um, and and potential, but it's built on some pretty good qualities of of tough stuff. Yeah. You know, like <clears throat> the industry's had to be tough to get here, and and now there's all this opportunity. You kind of want you, you kind of want the the tough stuff to, if you like, create a desire and a motivation to go and really take what's possible, as opposed to being a little bit half done. Oh, I absolutely agree. And if I look back on lessons, right, so if we reflect on some lessons in the GFC, the cost-cutting that needed to be done in that period, right, not to make money but to help owners keep their business was so significant. And I remember I was in a regional FC role back then and you have a spreadsheet with all the tabs of all your properties and you're going through trying to make anything you can. And I remember doing things like there was a large-scale... Uh, floral arrangement in the lobby. I forget the amount, but let's say it's $500 a month. I found someone who could make the exact same thing out of plastic and it was a hundred bucks, something, right? <laughs> so it's like, wow. So then I replaced it. Didn't tell anybody, just did it. And no one knew that this floral arrangement had been changed, that the vendor was no longer supplying us, but it's five or six grand, right? And so we were really looking for these things. So fast forward to now... I have no fear trying to find like costs if I really, really need to. Mm. Um, you hope you never have to go to that degree, but then again, here we are the last two years and we're back in that ballpark, right? So mm. I think one of my concerns going into this period was that people who haven't been through something like that were going to start from a pretty ordinary base and we really had to guide them through. Um, but those people, to your point, are now geared with the same... Stuff. Right? Mm. So as we come out, it's a very different ball game 
and you've got some people who've picked up some really, really strong acumen mm. from that lesson. So not everything is bad. Um, we're going to see, I think, some really good results. And hotels with, I guess, you know, those uh, lagging profit profiles where it's like, oh, here we go, it's starting to decline. I think we're going to see a real shift in that now. As in hotels will be able to hold their profitability whilst revenue bounces around a little bit? Well, I think... Without getting a, too technical. As a, no, but as, as a GM, as an FC, whoever it might be, department head, you're looking at your old P&L going, geez, like we, yeah, we, we actually could have yeah. done some different stuff here. Yeah, you and mentioned 17. Like, yeah. could you imagine in terms of the asset class, if we had done some of the things that we've done in the last couple of years in 2017-18, I mean, hotels would be perceived completely differently by the investment community. Potentially. Yeah, definitely. I think there's uh, there's there's always that sort of gap, right? There's always that little gap between, you know, what people are comfortable with and what actually could be done without, you know, fundamentally changing the business you're putting out there. So we always tread that fine line and there's lots of discussions around that. Everybody got used to the fact that you just go straight to that line and we're comfortable there. Um, so you're starting at a very different base. Mm. So that that being the case, if if you look at resi, uh, interest rates going up, property prices coming back a little, um, and you look at resi demand in, in the CBDs, you look at commercial and the post-COVID commercial footprint might be a little bit lighter than what it was pre-COVID in terms of space required. And then you look at retail. We're all very used to online shopping now and does the, does the retail environment change? And then you look at hotels. If, if, we, if we do some things well now, you kind of get the sense that hotels could piggyback over some of those other asset classes in the next couple of years. Um, they, could, it, they could be you know, up there holding their weight with returns when compared to commercial, resi, retail. We've always been seen as, yes, close to tier one, but not quite tier one. We, we're, we're almost there. The opportunity is definitely there. Um, I'm always cautious to watch and base everything off underlying human behaviour. And people like Warren Buffett make their money on the things that won't change, not on the things that will, right? So they're not speculative per se. So retail online, right? Everybody's used to that. I don't know your experience, but yeah. my experience is probably three out of four packages get returned, Right, something doesn't fit. Something's not right. Right. So, it's still not a great experience for things that you know where the specs are. Mm. Yeah, you know, a, a no-brainer for you. Mm. Sure, it's awesome. But then, you know, do I look good in these pants? Or you know, I need a shop. Yeah. Right. So there's always going to be certain factors there, but then for certain types then, of retail. Yes. But then retail has to reinvent itself. So you've got to make an experience out of going to a Westfield, right? They need to have more in there than just straight-up shops, mm. right? And you've got to have your anchor stuff there. So you would hope that they are able to reinvent to a certain degree. The office space is a tough one. Again, um, underlying human behaviour. If I really want to get a promotion and I want to make my way through my company, am I going to be able to do that? with limited contact with the people that matter, right? I'm not sold on that. There are definitely roles whereby the freedom is great, the ability to move out of a major city, um, afford a much nicer lifestyle for your family. All those things are happening and have been happening and they make a lot of sense. Um, so you probably will see the floor plate for office shrink a bit, but then the people who are there, it's going to be, you know, absolutely a given that they're coming in so there may be some movement there we'll see um the the residential stuff is always the hard one i think housing prices only go down when i'm much looking to buy right it's that old adage when you're looking to sell a house all oh, the market's tough you know when you're trying to buy a house mate, it's a boom market you know so um i think uh you know my in-laws bought their house for let's say, I don't know, $35,000, $40,000 in, in a beachside location in Sydney, right? They've never... I mean, we fast forward, 
know, 40 add, add two zero and right. two zeros. <laughs> but fast forward 40 years, right? So yeah. I'm not a believer that that will necessarily cool off to the point that you read. But we're the one that has this uh, sexiness, yeah. right? We've got this ability to drive yields. Like if you're good, you can really drive the yields, whereas office is stagnant. We can create experiences that drive value and yep. change room rate, yep. you know, like and we create great spaces. Like it's kind of there. Yeah. I think the combination of hotels and resi is actually the big, big thing for me. Because talking to a couple of developers, right, what they love is people want to buy a quality home, but the halo effect of having even 100 rooms of a great hotel product in that building yep. is a completely different ball game. Yep. So when I live there, I feel in, in New York, everywhere's got a doorman and all those things, right? We don't do that here in our buildings really. Yeah. Um, creating spaces like that is now becoming more and more common and i think uh, the industry's got a great role to play in that so it might not be they're necessarily competing head to head but some of them are combining a little bit more and then moving way ahead and you could add you could add commercial as Absolutely. part of the same complex so yeah. potentially if you found a place that you really love to live and work um, you could have a hotel providing services through the building that you become very familiar with and it's all integrated and Value is not only um, obtained by um, property value going up, but it might be obtained by the services that you offer Absolutely. and the ability to charge a premium and, and the ability to create these great experiences for a building. Yeah, and I think the demographics, depending on where it is, but you know, in, in Western Sydney where you've got these large enclaves of, of families, you've got a cafe and a childcare centre in your building. I mean, yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, and a gym. And a gym, Absolutely. Yeah. And then underpinned by this service throughout. Okay, look, we've um, we'll talk about hotels forever, but um, let's change tact a little bit. Um, state of origin. We're sitting here in the in the in the shadows of Accor Stadium. A shameless plug um, for my for my organisation. But we're sitting here in the in the shadows of of Accor Stadium. State of origin tomorrow night. Uh, what does state of origin mean to you? State of origin is one of those things. If you grow up in in New South Wales and Queensland, obviously, but um, as a kid, there's the stages of state of origin. So there's that period where I think you're probably, I don't know, up to maybe six or seven. You don't really know much about it. You hear it talked about on the news or, or whatever it might be. Then you sort of get into that period between eight and 12 where you know exactly what it is. You're really interested in it. You, you know that it's important if your team wins. Like So I just remember being so, you know, tied to the fact that New South Wales had to win and I was not allowed to stay up and watch the game. So I'm in bed. My mother would commentate the entire game. So I'd lie in bed having anxiety about a drop ball or something that I've never even seen because <laughs> <laughs> my mother's commentating the entire game from about three metres away. Then you get to that magical moment where they say you can stay up and you can watch it, right? So for me... Oh, that's, I don't know, late 80s, mm. 87, 88, right? Yeah. So we're talking about some amazing origin games. It's year seven, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's year, year seven absolutely. at school. You're right. So some amazing origin games in that period. And then there's a period where you go from just being allowed to sit there on the couch and watch to being allowed to say stuff, have opinions. You know, your dad might say, yeah, Scott, what do you think about this guy or... Was that, was that a good call, Scott? Was that fair? And, yeah. and so then you start to have an opinion. Totally different ball game once you're in the in the commentary box with your, with your dad or your mum. So then it's completely different. And then, you know, that Mark Guy or Wally Lewis thing will forever be the greatest thing that I ever saw. Um, the actual face-off that they show on TV all the time is actually not the bit that stuck with me. It's that one, it's that one freeze frame, isn't it? Because the, the actual confrontation was over very, very quickly. It's that one freeze frame where they're chest-to-chest, face-to-face, Gaia, this firebrand from the western suburbs of Sydney, I think first game, certainly first yeah. series. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And was told just to go out there and rip and tear against the king. Like The bit that stuck with me, if you watch what happened in the lead-up to that moment, 
Mark Geyer, I think I think he tackled somebody, right? And they have, they're at the play of the ball, they stand up, and I think he does a bit of a cheap shot. And then there's a fight that breaks out between him and whoever whoever was playing the ball. And then one by one, about 10 Queensland players run at Mark Guy and he just belts every single one of them as they walk. Like he had no fear. I, I love people who have zero fear in any aspect of life. And that's the bit that stuck with me. Like he just did not move. And it was just unbelievable. And he's on our team. <laughs> he's on our team. How good's that? Like we want that guy running out. The, the Queensland version of that story is, <laughs> is no doubt Billy Moore. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Tommy Radonikas came in to coach the New South Wales team and, and said, look, the first bloody person that yells out Queenslander, we're, we're going to hit. Yeah. I'm going to punch. And the Queensland camp got word of this. So as they're walking out of the tunnel to come on the ground, <laughs> Billy Moore is going, Queenslander, Queenslander. So it's, it's full of those characters. And I, I don't... The the game has got characters in a different form now. The um the the one and I'm and we are parochial New South Welshmen, so I apologise to to anyone from north of the border. But um the charisma of that that those Penrith halves and the the um the absolute foresight that someone like Isaiah um, Yo has for the game, like the characters are different, but they were big personalities back then. And Roy and HG, did you ever listen to Roy and HG? Yeah, the brick it was, with eyes. It was, it was the only way to watch the game with the sound turned down and those two guys commentating. That was a whole era in itself. Yeah. When you, when you finish, finish school, um, you're listening to those two guys. But, yeah, look, it's a phenomenon, right? It's, uh, you, couldn't really, you couldn't really predict, I don't think, when it kicked off what would happen in the end and just the sustained nature of this, you know. And I'm a big believer in zero technology in sport officiating, right? And the reason is... Uh, the game takes on a personality. The howler is why you and I sit around all day talking about the yeah. game, right? So that, that Jared Hayne foot on the line from whatever year it was, I've looked at that photo so many times, I've blown it up. I will say to this day, the guy is not on the line. And then everybody in Queensland, and the reason it's so important is it was going to snap that Thurston yeah. Slater era. Yeah. So to us, it's everything. That call, yes, that, that, that's that, right. those three millimetres. That toe. 100%. But I, you live and die by the call, right? When you start bringing in all these replays and all these sorts of things, there's a, there's a sense that it has to now be perfect because we've got all this stuff, right? I don't know about you, but I see howlers every weekend <laughs> still. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's better for all of us as a product if we're we're really fired up about it. Win, lose or draw. Mm. You know, you always have calls that go your way. You have calls that don't go your way. But that's why it's so great. And that's why you get so passionate about it. Yeah. So best, best state of origin memory? Best state of origin memory. It's Mark Geyer that. And, and that incident where he's just... Uh, willing to take the entire team to task, right? Like, it's just un unbelievable. Uh, that would be my favourite origin memory That as a kid. It's the reason I watched it now for the next 25 years, Yeah, right? My favourite origin was the one where New South Wales flogged Queensland 50-odd to 10. I believe it was here, and from the kickoff, they've spread it wide to Girdler. He's run the length of the field and scored, right? That's... Yeah, Actually, I think Girdler scored thirty points. He in, did, yeah. in the game himself, yeah. Yeah. Um, point scoring record. I, I I loved that series when Joey came back and from injury and um, steered the team around. Um, As a Novacastrian, I will say, uh, and particularly living in Newcastle during the Johns era, I personally loved it when he missed Origin because it meant he was right for finals. Yeah, and the years that we did well, he didn't really participate. Um, the way he normally would. Um, but, yes, when he, Freddie... Uh, Freddie. Well, I mean, we were blessed, right? Like, we, we were blessed um, with that team. Uh, yeah, for a number of years. Even uh, playing Sean Timmons at 5'8". At, uh, yes. To have... Uh, it was very similar to playing... Um, well, was Fittler, it? Fittler and Daly, wasn't it? Like, they, yeah. would, they would interchange between 13 and, and 6. Yeah. Because we had a similar setup at the Knights. We had a young bloke with red hair. I can't remember his name. Um, 
who played in the 2001 Premiership, but he was very much the same. Like, he was a tackle tackle machine. He had limited skills. He wasn't a kicker of the ball. But John's was everything, right? So he kept Joey safe, took a lot of that traffic. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good, good formula back then. All right, so let's... Let's wrap up a little. What so your your view of this podcast and and what can people expect to see from us? Like what are we going to put out and when are we going to put it out and and what's the content going to be like? Well, it's not just up to me, of course. <laughs> but look, I think um we've got a lot of people I mean you see a lot more people in the industry than I do in your travels, but We've got a lot of people in our industry who really have not seen, you know, the excitement and the things that we love about hotels. They're yet to experience that. I think it would be good to let them know there's some really good stuff available um, and you've got to get out there and be a part of it. Mm. Um, but people who are, you know, they've been in the industry for some time, um, we don't want those people flat. Right, we want those guys fired up and excited about what's coming. Um, for people who've been in the industry for a long time, maybe we'll take them back down memory lane <laughs> and they'll they'll think, yeah, actually, you know what, I, I, I had that happen to me, I saw that, I did that. Um, so hopefully, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're sharing something with everybody that's worth worth hearing. And we're not, we're not just going to be all about hotels, are we? You know, we want, it, we want this to be a fairly broad... Agenda, yes. I mean, you can't you can't hide our passion for our industry, and it will have a slant down that down that path. But this is going to be about um, just great conversations and trying to capture that. Absolutely, and I think there's always going to be things that happen in the world where it's like, you know what, we cannot not talk about that. Yeah. Right. So a federal election happens, or something major happens, you can't ignore those things. Uh, sometimes you can put a hotel slant on those, but sometimes not. You know, um, but philosophical chats, uh, having a laugh, uh, it's always good. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about the election now, but we'll, we'll leave that. We'll leave that. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that next time. Uh, I'd love to get your view on, on what the change of government means for us all. Sounds good. Now, this is also not going to just be about you interviewing me, right? No, I know. <laughs> so I know. so, so let, me, let me ask you a question. Sure. And we can, we can finish on these, but... Um, Tell me about what you think or when it was that you decided, you know what, I love this and this is going to be what I do. Yeah, well, it was it was the start of February 1992 and I had just done my HSC the year before. I got 74 and a half and uh, I was committed to go to the Blue Mountains Hotel School before the HSC. So the HSC result and the HSC process for me wasn't... I mean, I look back at it now actually with great regret. I should have I should have worked harder. Uh, I didn't work hard. I, I, I was just really interested in playing footy, uh, working at McDonald's and and um, just life was busy and I, I just didn't really focus on the HSC. But 1992, um, sitting in the dining room of the Blue Mountains Hotel School... And this fellow, um, Philip Neville, who was responsible for admissions and making sure we all got admitted um, to the school properly and settled down. And um, it was a fully immersive experience. So we lived, we lived in a hotel environment. We, we, it was 24-7. And he was explaining the industry to this room of, of people. And it was the first... Like the school was a year old, so no one really knew what a Swiss hotel school in Australia was or you know what to expect. And Philip just went through and talked about food and beverage and rooms division and this is what this is what a porter does and this is what a this is what a bar person does and this is what hospitality is and this is what you can expect uh, and I, I I think I fell in love that morning I I, I I just remember thinking this is this is this is perfect for me and uh, I did a complete three well complete 180 I I went from being someone who really enjoyed hanging out with mates probably far too much and and not really applying myself to to anything to to really studying hard and working hard and I, I wanted to make this industry a, a go and and it all goes but I can still remember the smell I can still remember it smelled like a log fire 
um, that had just been put out. Like you could smell that burnt timber in the room and um, and everyone was nervous. The excitement in the room was palpable and and, and this fellow stood up and, and the words that came out of his mouth, they, they changed my life. That's a great story. So hopefully that's what we can get out of doing this. Yeah. So when you were growing up, was your family travelling a lot um, as a group? Were you in hotels a lot growing up? No, quite the, quite the opposite. So uh, I come from a working class family. We're, we're in Olympic Park now as we record this. I grew up seven kilometres to the northwest in a, in a little um, suburban um, oh, it's suburban piece of Australia, really. Um, and, and my parents both worked extremely hard. My dad was a local news agent and my mum was a radiographer. Um, my, my grandmother was in, in, and grandfather was in my life a lot, um, being home when we came home from school. And mum and dad just worked hard to put us through school. So we were never travelling. Like, the, the highlight of the travelling year for the boys' family was getting in the Mitsubishi uh, Magna station wagon uh, and going up to Coolangatta and staying in the Palm Beach apartments. Fantastic. <laughs> in fact, my first my first time in a plane was to go, my, my grandfather uh, was in the Lions Club and, and there was a Lions convention at Norfolk Island. So we got into the Fokker Friendship and went to Norfolk oh, wow. Island. I must have been about 16. That was my first time in a plane. Um, so uh, I'm just amazed that, that now when you look at kids and teenagers just the amount of travel they can do and, and the great product they get exposed to. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad for that because not enough people were exposed to the great industry that we have at a young age, whereas now I think people are. And yes, the industry might have a bit of a PR problem at the moment um, in terms of attracting young people to it. Um, but I just think we've got to talk about the way they felt as a 12-year-old staying in a hotel. Like the way that you told that story about a 12-year-old watching The State of Origin... Everyone has got one of those stories about hotels. Like the first time you went and saw a resort pool as a 14-year-old on that family trip to Noosa or Kingscliff or wherever and how you felt, imagine working in that every single day. Like that that could be your future and um, you could recreate that feeling. And um, so, no, I I didn't travel much as a kid. It was always car trips, no no air conditioning, um, the the Game Boy playing parachute, um, playing solitaire, um, having a fight with my sister because she, you know, moved a leg too close and um, are we there yet? All of that. You and know. all the gaps between the good radio stations yes. on the drive. That, it was just quiet. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It was just quiet. <laughs> Nothing. Although, yeah, I had a fluoro yellow Walkman. I remember that. And, um, yeah, I used to just record my own cassettes off the Take 40 Australia countdown and um, Club Veg Radio. Did you Yeah, Club Veg? And, uh, yeah, so I'd have all my own stuff, but. Um, yeah, very different times. I think you're right. I actually uh, booked my sister-in-law and her kids in to one of our properties a couple of weekends ago and just being in a hotel, they were so excited about it. Yeah. And they ordered re- like they could have gone anywhere uh, and done anything, but they wanted room service. Yeah. And getting room service was a, was a big deal. Yeah. And going up to the rooftop, you know, swimming in the pool, like seeing the view... Um, and my little nephew, I think he's six or seven, it's like, you know, I'm really making some memories here. Yeah, that's like, awesome. It's, uh, it's, it's just, you know, we, I take it for granted when I walk in, you know, now. But uh, you're right, the impact on the, on the younger generation is pretty pretty big. And, Hotels um, can change lives. Yeah. Uh, they do. They change lives. And if you think about all your greatest moments, you know, in life, in some of them, a hotel played a role. Yeah, and that's that's as a guest. Not I'm not. Yes, no, even great moments professionally, hotels have obviously played roles. But I think about my wedding day and and getting ready at the Sofitel Wentworth and then going and getting married. I think about traveling with babies and then you get that solitude of a hotel and you think, oh my God, okay, now I can relax because my kid's not waking up the whole plane. Like uh, hotels are great places. They're great places, and I think. I think the story we've got to tell is that, hey, like, this is a really good thing that we've got, and, um, yeah, it can be a, it can be an amazing place to forge a career, and in doing so, create great friendships and um, great memories, and um, it's a great journey. 
So you fell in love 30 years ago. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I know from knowing you well enough that it's stronger now than it's ever been. Um, <clears throat> your parents, obviously, you said earlier, they, they worked very hard to help you succeed. You know, you've been able to go through a really good journey where now you're at a point where maybe you haven't reached the pinnacle of your career and no one ever knows when that is. But you've certainly become very successful in our industry. You know, how is that for your parents to see you go through the industry? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I owe a great debt of gratitude to my parents because they, they saw the value in, in a good education, uh, been exposed to a lot of different things, they allowed me to go through my rat bag years, and I was a <laughs> I was a rat bag as a fifteen and sixteen year old, and uh, I certainly felt like I knew best all the time. Uh, they they taught me a deep sense of family values, um, doing the right thing, working hard, um, being a good person. Yeah, I I think I think my parents and I, I haven't asked them but I, I think they're proud of the person I've become and and in a way the industry has helped forge that amongst other influences in my life um, we don't talk about we don't talk about position and responsibility much but we we talk a lot about life and yeah I think they're I think that's probably that's to me that's more important than than the role I have, you know. Um, and in fact, to me, that's more important professionally than the role that I have is that I, I, I really want to be a good leader. Um, I really want to be a good partner in business. I really want to be someone who can um, transform spaces and create experiences for our guests. Like, that's far more important than the role and responsibility. Do you think now, looking back, you know, as a parent yourself, and I know I, I certainly do this, you cross your fingers and all you want is that they find their way. Whatever mm. that is, um, each to their own. But as long as they find their way and then they, they set off on that path with some conviction, then you're pretty well happy, right? Job done. Mm. So I think, you know, you've certainly done that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and you're right. You're right. <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that because uh, I think the, the inclination is as – parents who really want the best for their kids is you probably get too involved in their lives and you probably do <laughs> you probably do <laughs> you probably do yeah. tell them what you would do as opposed to letting them work it out and and uh i mean i do i we we uh, jen my wife and i we do parent our um we're very consistent as parents i think and we've got a very um united style when it comes to our, our boys and um, in many ways, it's kind of like um, the environment that our parents created for us. Um, but I did have a I did have a proud moment actually. Was, uh, just after I spoke to you on Saturday, so um, my, my our elders rang me and and said, "What do you think? I've got to make this decision. What do you think?" And consciously, for the first time, being a parent, I I I, I did say, "Doesn't really matter what I think. Like, tell me what you think." And um, yeah, he 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 pretty much nailed it. And um, yeah, I, I thought that. I thought that it's about it's about letting them scrape their knees and making their own calls and just providing the bumper bars so they don't go too far <laughs> too far either way. But um, yeah, exposing them to a whole lot of different stuff and letting them find their own way. Um, yeah, it's pretty important as as they become teenagers, particularly. I didn't really answer your question, but yeah, I, I I am lucky. I am lucky that the the childhood that my parents gave me, and subsequently, I'm trying to pass that on. I think it's um, everybody's everybody's personalities are different. You know, my parents. Um, I mean, my father said this in his speech at our wedding. Like he he knew, I think, pretty early on. Like I was just headstrong. I knew what I was doing whether he agreed with it or not or whether they agree with it or not. It wasn't going to change what you did. Oh, well, I, I formed a view and then away I went, right? And so he said, you know, he saw that as a bit belligerent um, when I was younger. But then as I was getting older, it, you know, it starts, the picture starts to be, become a bit clearer um, that I'm just someone who says, right, I like that, I'm going to do that. 
and I go. Um, I don't sort of, you know, muck around. And um, I think for my parents, getting into this industry, so I had worked in cafes from when I was, you know, 13, 14, right? So I'd always been doing stuff like that, thought about being a chef for a period of time, but, um, but then finished high school like you, got the marks to get into university, so then went and did a business degree. My best mate was doing it. Um, but I hated university. Like, I just did not enjoy it at all. Um, you know, why, I was, why was that? My father calls me Mr. 85%, right? I do zero work and I still get 85. And I always say, why would I, why would I spend my whole life trying to get the extra 15 when 85 gets me everything I want in life? Mm. Right? The 15... 85 is good enough. 85 gets you great things. And I get to choose how I spend my time, right? Yeah. But it used to drive him nuts because... Like, you're not being like, your best. Like you're talking about, in the HSC, I got the marks that I needed, mm. not the marks I could have got. Yeah. Right? And Is that I, a regret for you too? Nah, not at all. I had a great time. <laughs> but, you know, like, it's, if you get, like you just said, you've got a great group of friends. Um, you know there's a responsibility, right? So the responsibility was get into university. Right, I ticked that box, mm-hmm. and I still had a great, great time while I did it. Um, so that was fine for me. But then when I went to university, I really did not enjoy it. the 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 environment whereby it's like completely hands off. You know, when you're in high school, you're you're in structure. Yeah. At university, it's completely hands off. I moved out of home when I was eighteen, so I'm living in a house with my mates, trying to go to university, learning how to pay bills, all these things. Right all coming at the same time. I was working overnight uh, at Coles, stacking shelves, so I had money to be able to do anything at all because we had no money back then. Um, So in the end, I started to lean more to, I can earn money. Why would I be spending all my... So it became a real trade-off. Not only that, uh, I found, you know, the the accountancy stuff super boring. Um, So it wasn't something where I'm imagining myself in this amazing... So you've had this epiphany from learning at the very beginning. I had the exact opposite. Mm. So, <clears throat> it, and ironically, I don't know if it was the actual learning as opposed to the environment. I was living in a hotel. Right, well, there you go. It wasn't yeah. like I was getting up and going to uni every day. It was, oh, I'm living in a hotel yeah. and I've got to learn this stuff to be able to be really good at this hotel stuff. So I failed everything my first semester at uni. And my parents, because I was a keen musician, um, I was living in a house with all my bandmates. All we did all day was play play music together. And my dad said, Look, I'll buy you any guitar you want, you name it, right, if you just pass these subjects in your second semester. And I failed all of them yeah. again. <laughs> and I, I remember vividly going to my parents' house for Christmas and my grandmother walked in and said to my mother, how did he go? And my mother shook her head. My grandmother hugged her like something really bad had just happened. And that was where I went, you know what? I probably better get Mac together here. Like this is starting to freak everybody out. And I knew in myself, I'm a go-getter. Like mm. I'll, I'll, I'll have a good life. I'll get a good job. I'll do good things. I never worried about that. But to your point earlier, I wasn't applying myself at all. So then I got the job as the night auditor and that was the ability to work nights and still go to university. And then once I started to do a job where I actually found it meaningful, then everything changed. And in a hotel environment, I mean, the hotel was the best accommodation product in the city, right? So... Baby status as well. Well, you're dressing well, like, you know, I'm not bumming around with my mates playing drums. Like, I'm, I'm wearing a suit and tie. It's very different. But what made me fall in love was my, I think it was my third night. Every night when I came in to do night audit, the first thing I did was walk down to the restaurant and bar to find out are they busy, when are they going to shut, because depending on when I get their paperwork is how long it takes me to do everything. And we had to count money. Had to count money back then. Had to count money, had to balance everything, and then roll the day, right? And rolling the day, who knows how long that takes. So... First thing I would do is go down there and find out where they're at. I walked into the bar and the Sex Pistols are sitting in the bar, oh. right? This is the tour where they came out in the late 90s and 
honestly, like, I, I wet myself because uh, we had the Sex Pistols on our answering machine. We used to have answering machines back in the day. <laughs> no mobiles, right? So uh, we used to play their songs. If you're a kid who wants to play music, yeah, Sex Pistols, Ramones, all these bands where it's basic stuff, right? Yeah. You learn all that stuff because you want to be able to play songs in front of your friends. Um, so I was like... I can't believe it. So I ran straight back down to the GM's office and I locked the door and I rang my house and I said to my bandmates, guys, the Sex Pistols are in the in the, in the the hotel. They're here. And they're like, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. So it's amazing. So then I stood on the front desk waiting patiently because they had to walk past the front desk to get to the elevator to get to their room. So I'm standing there waiting, waiting, waiting and then they finally came past <clears throat> um, and like, I don't know what to say. I'm third night in. So I didn't say anything. I just nodded, <laughs> nodded and smiled. Johnny Rotten walking past. Johnny Rotten said, hello, lad. Hmm. And I said, good evening. Mr. Rotten. What do I say? <laughs> Mr. Rotten. Uh, but honestly, from that moment on, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Like, imagine that. Yeah. I would never see Johnny Rotten people. just spoke to me. Just spoke to me. My third day. <laughs> so from that point on, you know, combine that with I felt like the work was meaningful. Um, it was using my brain. Like I've always had a numbers brain, so that stuff was good. Um, so then I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right into this. And so – and we have to – we said we are going to wrap this up 20 minutes ago. This is the, this is the <laughs> beauty of this, um, this format. But uh, one last question. You mentioned the headstrong kid that, you, that your father saw. How does that translate to your parenting style? Does, does that, is that still there? Because that must be hard for you to... If that's you, how do you hold that back? So I have two daughters. Uh, I'm outnumbered three to one in my house. Um, so you kept in your place? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think it's, it's like the... You hear about it, but then when you actually experience it, you go, okay, now I get it, right? So the relationship between a boy... And his father is very special. It has a very specific context, right? And as you go through the years, there's a very different uh, relationship that forms between a father and his son. And then again with a father and daughter, it's a very, very different relationship. And even for me, before we had kids, watching my wife, she's the youngest of three girls, watching her with her dad, right? Like she idolizes him. He, 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 if he says something is white, it's white. <laughs> Even now, ten years, <laughs> we've been married ten years, so it doesn't matter what I say, right? Um, but that's how it should be. And so, she idolizes him. There's this, there's just this special thing that will never be. I couldn't say tangibly what it is, but it's always there. So with my two, um, it's the same. There are things about me that I know that they really need, right? So when we walk into a social situation where there's people they don't know, they both stand right behind me and they know that they'll be safe, right? And it's all good. Um, when we go to the park and there's other kids, I will go and play with the other kids, start talking to them, bring my kids in, help them learn how to be social. Yeah, the connector. All that stuff, right? So they love that stuff. Connector and protector. Yeah, so they, lo they love that stuff. Um I I am actually, I'm not headstrong about what they do. I'm actually very uh, easygoing about what they do. What I want them to do, though, is just have a crack. If it's not for them, I'm okay with that, mm. right? But what I don't like is things like not having a real go at it, um, you know, things like that. So they will say that I would, I would say to them, yeah, my daughter wanted to play the guitar, and I said to her, look, I play... Do you want me to teach you? So I sat down with her, gave her really basic information. I drew stuff on the back of the guitar so she could do it. She didn't do it for very long, wasn't that excited about it, but then she got an app on the iPad that does guitar lessons. She sat there for hours happily, right? So 85% is good enough, Dad. Oh, yeah, no, but you know, there's things where you go, okay, like it can't be me that teaches this. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I'm okay with that. Um, so I think yeah, maybe it's a vulnerability in front of like maybe it's that they don't they want to impress you with what they know, not have you as part of the journey, perhaps. 
Yeah, I think they do enjoy when they... I mean, I've learnt that they do enjoy achieving outside of, you know, myself and my wife being part of the process, right? Mm. So so we create opportunities for that now constantly. Um, but, you know, on Saturday I took my youngest to a park where she can ride her scooter or her bike and it's got great traffic lights and all this stuff. So she's out there just ripping it up and I'm just sitting on a bench... And so she'd go and do a lap and she'd come back and say, Dad, was that a good lap? Were you happy with that lap? And I'm like, it's a great lap. So are you happy? She's like, yeah, absolutely. And then she'd say, Dad, which, which way do you want me to go now? I said, you choose, either way. Um, and so she'd do it and then she came back and she said, Dad, do you want me to run a lap? <laughs> I was like, if you want to run a lap, baby, go run, run a lap. So she ran this lap, I videoed it, it was hilarious. She's in this massive helmet and she's running this lap, but she's just having a great time. But she checked back in with me to say, "What do you think about what do you that?" Think, yeah. You know, and so I do the thing where I do what you do, where I say, "What do you think? You you had to do it. Was it good? Did you enjoy it?" Like, it, my opinion is not the primary thing, so I think yeah. that's that is important. Um, yeah. Very good. Well, look, we could talk for hours, but let's uh, let's keep some things up our sleeve for next time. Is that okay with you? Sounds good. Should we uh, should we let Axel and the boys take us away um, until we uh, we do this again? Why not? Okay. Well, it's been great, Grant. Thank you very much. Uh, great to spend some time together, uh, and it's uh, even greater to listen to Axel slash <laughs> Duff and others uh, with Guns and Roses. See you all next time. Thanks a lot, Grant. Thanks, Scott.